Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, November 8th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new broadcast week, and we are delighted, thrilled, honored, etc. to have all of you here Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen live, which we recommend, we encourage you to check out the podcast, which is free. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, I'll be joining the special report panel this evening with Brett Baer and company in the 6 p.m. hour. So after we're off the air here, right around 6.40 p.m. Eastern, I'll be on set with Brett. Hadn't been at the desk in well over a year and a half for all the reasons that I think we all know. But I'll be very excited to be back in studio for a special report this evening. On today's radio show, here's what we've got. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, she will join me in the next hour. She has penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal along with Dr. Marty McCary, who's been on this program several times. Both of them are Fox News medical contributors Headline on this op-ed from these two doctors, should you vaccinate your five-year-old? Question mark. Subheadline, be reassured that whatever you do, the risk is extremely low. We will break down the advice that the doctors give to parents in our next hour with Dr. Sapphire. Plus, I want to get her reaction to something that the CDC director said. So I'm looking forward to that conversation with the doctor. Also, in our final hour, the happy hour, 5 p.m. Eastern or so, Andy McCarthy is going to be here, former federal prosecutor. I want to ask him about the Fifth Circuit putting at least a hold on the employer vaccine mandate via OSHA that President Biden has attempted. Will that survive Further legal pressures, we'll ask Andy about that. I will also ask him about the latest indictment from John Durham on the Russia matter and the Russia investigation, the origins thereof, and the very significant, I think, development of what happened last week. We mentioned it with Molly Hemingway. We've got Kim Strassel on the same issue later in the week. Andy has been following it just as closely as anyone. His analysis coming up later in today's show. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats, 46.4 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States cumulatively. And multiply that by a factor of uh, three or four for the real number. The death toll with and of COVID in the United States, 754,051. The Dow is up right now, 103 points in the green, currently trading at 36,429. We'll keep an eye on that 
as the closing bell approaches at the top of the next hour. There are a few things that I want to get into here at the start of the show in our opening hour. I've got a lot to say on politics, and I will get to some of it coming up in the next segment, a development on Friday night, late Friday night, involving passage in the House of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I am not thrilled with what happened. I will explain why, although I'm not as angry as some conservatives are, at least not yet. I will also give you the why behind that coming up. I want to open, however, with a few more pieces of bad news for Joe Biden, our president, and for his party, the Democratic Party. We covered at great length the elections that happened last week, nearly a week ago. We were particularly invested in Virginia, where Republicans swept into victory, winning statewide races, all three of them in this case, for the first time in 12 years. That was a 12 to 13 point reversal from Biden's margin in Virginia just a year ago, where he won by 10. The Republicans won by two to three points in Virginia last Tuesday. We've also talked about New Jersey, where now Jack Cittarelli, the Republican, is not yet conceded, but... It appears that he has lost. The AP has called that race, but it was awfully close, two or three points again, compared to Biden winning New Jersey by 16 points. So that's almost the exact same swing in Jersey and Virginia, 12, 13 points away from the Biden margin to the Republican. And these are blue states, I'll remind you, right? Both of these states were won by Joe Biden by double digits. If you get a 12-ish point swing elsewhere in the country, places that are not as blue as Virginia or certainly New Jersey, I mean, that would be bloodbath political territory for the Democratic Party one year from now in the midterm elections. I mean, even if it's just a third of that margin shift, right, let's just say it's four points across the board. That swing would be devastating to the Democrats. They would absolutely lose the House. They would almost certainly lose the Senate as well. And imagine a few governorships might change hands in the process. Now, there's a long way to go between now and then. But some of the signs, the early signs of a very bad night in the midterms for Democrats have already manifested. I want to read to you just a little bit from a New York Times story talking about some races that did not get as much attention, but there were little races like this dotted all across the country. School board races in Colorado, for example, local and judicial elections in Pennsylvania, local elections in a suburb of New York City, Nassau County, Long Island, New York. This is what the New York Times focused on today. I'm just going to read this from the piece. It wasn't the high taxes in Nassau County or the recent changes to New York's bail laws that drove Lizette Sosini, former Democrat, to vote for Republicans this year. Her reasons were more overarching. Quote, I don't like the president and the Democrats are spending too much money on things like infrastructure. She said she's 56 years old. She's from Great Neck, New York. Quote, maybe if Democrats see how we're voting in these local elections, they'll see that we're not happy with the way things are going. 
across the country, Democrats witnessed an intense backlash on Election Day as the party suffered more losses in Virginia and in many suburban communities like Nassau County, where Democratic leaders were swept from office by Republicans, even though registered Democrats outnumber Republicans by 100,000. So Nassau County is a Democratic area. Democrats have an advantage, right, a registration advantage of six figures just in the county of Nassau. But Republicans turned out, independents went red, some Democratic voters switched sides, other Democrats stayed home, and the Republicans won in that suburb of New York City. The Times reports off-year elections are often hard for the party of the sitting president, but the results from last week defied candidate expectations and bolstered arguments that President Biden's unpopularity and the Democratic Party's internecine battles were undermining its viability in the suburbs. They quote one of the Democrats who lost, who says, quote, there was a wave. There's no doubt about it, even for an unapologetically pro-business, pro-public safety Democrat talking about herself. And so she was a moderate Democrat and she got beat. She's like, yep, that was a wave. In conversations with more than a dozen Nassau County voters this week, this is in the New York Times, they cited their overall disapproval of the president, their distaste for vaccine mandates, and a fear of funds being diverted from the police as factors in their decision to vote Republican. Concerns over Mr. Biden's handling of Israel also arose several times. There were also quotes of people unhappy about the way the Afghanistan withdrawal went, even though we were assured, well, that won't really move votes. Well, it impacts the way people think. I said last week, I think that the mandate stuff, the restrictions and mandates on COVID were an underrated issue last week. And this New York Times reporting in Nassau County, suburban New York, seems to bear that out. So that's some of the bad news I wanted to share with you from the perspective of the White House and the Democratic Party. It gets worse for them when they open their USA Today and look at the new poll from USA Today and Suffolk University. In that poll, Republicans are now leading on the generic congressional ballot ahead of next year by eight points, 46 to 38. Republicans almost never lead on this metric in any poll. Like if it is roughly tied or statistically tied, Republicans are down, you know, three points or something. That's usually a very good sign for Republicans. If they're up eight, that is extraordinary. But it would also be in line with what we saw last week. With the swings of 13 points in blue states away from Biden and away from the Democrats to the Republicans. What else does the polling show? The president's approval rating is now at 38 percent with 59 percent disapproving. This is still a bit of an outlier poll. Biden's numbers are ugly, not usually quite this ugly. But this is a respected pollster. He's underwater by 21 points, 38-59 on approval. The vice president, Kamala Harris, is actually worse. She's got 28% approval, 51% disapproval. So that's 23 points underwater. She would be the heir apparent for Joe Biden should he decide not to run again. She's less popular than he is, which is a real feat these days. Now, my understanding is we're just getting sound in. Uh, the vice president reacting to these uh, polling numbers. Let's listen to that soundbite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
Meanwhile, the Build Back Better Biden agenda is basically split in terms of support and lack of support. Although lining up with other polling that we've seen, they ask people, will this help your family? Will the reconciliation Democrat partisan bill help your family? Only a quarter of respondents said yes. And that's similar to what we saw in a recent ABC News poll. From the USA Today story on the survey, quote, nearly half of all surveyed, 46 percent, say Biden has done a worse job as president than they had expected. Now, I had low expectations. I had low expectations for Joe Biden, but he has been worse than I expected. Among independents, it's a seven to one relationship. Forty four percent to six percent say that he's done worse, not better than they expected. Those are the crucial independent voters. Washington Post has a story about how Grandpa Joe's getting cranky, apparently, behind the scenes. Quote, over his three decades in politics. By the way, let me pause there for The Washington Post. There's a quick fact check there, The Washington Post. Three decades in politics? I think they're missing two decades. He entered a Senate race in 1972, back of the envelope. That's about five decades in politics, guys. I know journalists and math, but come on. But they write, in his three decades in politics, Biden has been known to scream at staff on occasion. But Biden aides said since he's become president, the yelling has become more frequent and directed at a wider audience of staff. So the old man is yelling at his staff in addition to yelling at clouds, apparently. I wonder if they shared this poll with him yet. He might explode. Now, when we come back, I want to bring to you the update from late Friday night a vote to pass the infrastructure bill in the House. More than a dozen Republicans voted yes and gave Pelosi the margin that she needed. We will break that down as soon as we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. One more quick note on the polling, by the way. I was mentioning that Suffolk USA Today poll, just dismal, brutal for the Democrats. CNN has released their own poll today, and they've got Democrats leading by 10 points on the generic ballot. USA Today poll had them down eight. CNN has them up 10. They also have Biden at 48 percent approval. Now, let me just ask you this. Based on what we saw last week in two blue states with 13-point swings to the Republicans, which of those polls do you think is more likely to be accurate, Republicans leading on the ballot or Democrats up 10? For reference, Democrats won the popular vote in the House in 2018, their blue wave year, by eight points. CNN polling says that they have an even bigger lead today. Do you believe that? I don't care about like your gut or your feelings. Look at the results that we just had last week. So that's some uh, home cooking there in the CNN poll, some uh, fan service. That is not a plausible result, in my opinion. 
Now, late Friday night, I was at the rehearsal dinner for a wedding weekend for my cousin. We'll talk a bit about that later on. I was following a little bit on Twitter the votes and the situation in the House, which dragged on for hour after hour after hour. And it looked like finally most of the progressives, not all of them, the squad and a few others stuck to their guns, but most of the progressives said, okay, we'll agree to this thing where we will vote on the infrastructure bill as long as the moderates promise that they'll vote on our reconciliation bill with all the partisan spending if the CBO score bears out what the White House has said the numbers will look like. And I don't think there's any guarantee of that, by the way, but that was the deal. So they held a vote and the bipartisan infrastructure bill that had passed the Senate already with quite a bit of Republican support also passed the House late Friday night. Thirteen Republicans in the House voted yes. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again on the merits There were some things to commend this bill. I did not attack the Republican senators, for example, who helped negotiate it and voted in favor of it. I can see both sides of the question, yes or no, from a Republican perspective. I probably lean a little bit no, but I'm not fanatical about it. I'm open to that conversation. What bothers me is because of the Democratic defections that they had from the progressives, Pelosi needed those Republican votes. If you took away those Republican votes from this bipartisan bill, it would not have passed. So a handful of House Republicans bailed out Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats by allowing this thing to get passed and check that off their list. I am not thrilled with that at all. Now, is there a counterpoint? There is. I'm not sure how strong the counterpoint is, but here's what it sounds like. What the moderates wanted from the very beginning in the House was to decouple the Build Back Better Democrat reconciliation monstrosity and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The progressives said, nope, they have to be together because they don't trust the moderates. They want to pass both of them together, which is what Pelosi initially agreed to. Because they were worried that the moderates and the Republicans would sort of come together, they'd get enough votes, they'd pass infrastructure, and then not do the huge Democrat-only spending. So now those bills actually have been decoupled. We don't know what the CBO score is going to look like of the House bill. The Senate is a completely different question. Joe Manchin's been talking about months of, you know, putting things on pause. That is going to be a very rocky road ahead in all likelihood. And if that bill gets really watered down or even dies, then the vote on infrastructure maybe doesn't look as bad. We shall see. Talking immigration next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. 
So I made a note for myself on Friday's program that I wanted to get to immigration today. And there's been something that's actually been playing out with President Biden and at the White House now for the last few days that I want to revisit. We talked about it a bit last week, but let's focus here. It is about this Wall Street Journal story. It got the ball rolling early last week that the Biden administration was in talks with lawyers for illegal immigrants who were seeking compensation settlement money for their clients who were illegal immigrants separated from their families under the Trump administration, under that short-lived family separation policy. And the report from the Wall Street Journal was that the dollar figure being discussed was up to $450,000 per person, per illegal immigrant impacted by that policy. So I raised that here because that seemed insane to me. We noted a tweet from Congressman Dan Crenshaw who pointed out that members of the U.S. military who are lost in combat, who die in the line of duty, their families often receive lower payments than that for their life insurance from the government. And that's someone who has died serving the country in the U.S. military, not someone who underwent a family separation for a discrete period of time. 450 grand per person. So President Biden was asked about this by our colleague Peter Ducey last Wednesday. And Biden called on him and go, oh, this ought to be good. Because he, he kind of likes trolling Peter and sparring with Peter. But we got a pretty clear, almost angry denial out of the president who called the report garbage. If you missed it, don't take my word for it because this is going to come back into play in just a few minutes. Listen to what the president said in response to the questions. This was last week, cut eight. As you were leaving for your overseas trip, there were reports that were surfacing that your administration is planning to pay illegal immigrants who are separated from their families at the border up to $450,000 each, possibly a million dollars per family. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. Okay. So $450,000 $450, per person. Is that what you're saying? That was separated from a family member at the border under, under the last administration. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. He called it garbage. You keep sending that garbage out? It's not true. Peter asks, so this is a garbage report? Yeah, replies President Biden. Okay, so that would seem to be a denial from President Biden. And my guess, as I mentioned last week is, and I wrote about this also at townhall.com, he's been around forever, almost 50 years, as we pointed out earlier, in Washington, D.C., and he might know a political loser when he sees one. Now, he might be losing some of that sense these days. But instinctually, even Joe Biden might seem to recognize we're going to pay 450 grand per person, these illegal immigrants 
who were separated from their family for a period of time during the last administration, how's that going to play with the American people? And I will also underscore the fact I was opposed to the family separation policy. I thought it was wrong. I thought it was also counterproductive and unhelpful. And it was jettisoned. It was canceled in very short order. It did not last long. I think that was a a bad decision that was made and very poor advice that President Trump got. And then they reversed course. That being said, even as someone who publicly opposed the policy, I talked about it on the air pretty forcefully, the idea that we're going to be giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to the victims of this. I understand. I'm sure it was difficult for some of the kids and that can be traumatizing. This is also another way of rewarding illegal behavior, rewarding and incentivizing illegal immigration. These people knew that it was hugely dangerous to bring their kids to the United States. In many of these circumstances, they did it anyway because they wanted to be here, but also because they got the word that having a kid with you is helpful to your chances of getting in. And so that's why lots of kids were put at risk. And there were some concerns about kids being brought in and trafficked, not by their real parents. And so there was, I think, an overcorrection on that, an overreaction with the family separations for a period of time. I think it's fair to say, you know what, that was a mistake. We're going to move on. But then treating that like it is an unspeakable trauma worth, what, half a million dollars per illegal immigrant? In my own gut, I'm like, absolutely not. And I'll bring you some of the uh, public opinion on this in just a moment. But I think that initial reaction, right, the reflexive knee-jerk from Biden was, that's garbage. We're not going to do it. Not going to happen. But – Pretty quickly thereafter, the cleanup and the reversal began from the White House and Team Biden. For example, in Cut 10, this is later that same week, I think it was the next day, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who is uh, Circleback's deputy there at the uh, White House press office, she actually announced the president, as it turns out, is, quote, perfectly comfortable with settlements being agreed to and paid out on this front. Cut 10. The president is perfectly comfortable with the Department of Justice settling with the individuals and families who are currently in litigation with the U.S. government. You know, DOJ can obviously speak more to that process. The president was what he was reacting to uh, was the dollar figure that was mentioned that you mentioned to him yesterday. Uh, as press accounts to date indicate, there's been press accounts on this. DOJ made clear to the plaintiffs that the reported figures are higher than anywhere that a settlement can land. Again, this is a this is something that the Department of Justice can can speak to. I, I do not have anything more to add to this. So what they're trying to say now is, oh, well, when he said it's garbage and it's not going to happen, he was just talking about $450,000. But he's perfectly comfortable with settlements that are perhaps a little bit lower than that. Now, NBC and CNN had reports last week that once Biden said what he said, then the Justice Department people who were in these negotiations started scrambling to perhaps change the term of the negotiations because Biden had dismissed 450K. And there were lawyers for the illegal immigrants saying, wait, he came in and he blabbed, saying this is not going to happen, and now the numbers might come down. They were not happy about that. 
Seems like Biden didn't know what these negotiations were, did not know what was happening, didn't realize the astronomical sums that were being discussed. And I wonder, you know, if they bring it, even if they cut it in half, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars per person for illegal immigrants, for being separated temporarily from their families upon arriving illegally in our country. So the new spin, the way that they're couching it is, Oh, the denial was about that dollar amount, although apparently Biden rejecting that dollar amount came as a surprise to the people actually engaged in this stuff within his own administration. I also thought it was interesting the next day Peter Ducey asked Ms. Jean-Pierre at the White House this question. It didn't really seem to compute in her brain at first. I think it's an interesting and illustrative question from Ducey. Listen to the exchange in cut nine. There is a long line to get into this country legally. Is there any kind of discussion about giving people who are coming here the right way money? Why would I, why would we be giving people who are coming here the white right way money? Why are you giving people who came here the wrong I, way? I mean, but I, I don't understand the, the the question. What is the, you're saying that we should give immigrants. we should we should give people just money who are coming through? I don't understand the question. You're giving people who immigrated here illegally money. Like I said, like I said, that's the Department of Justice. That's you're going to have to ask them that question. So she uh, pivots off and refers it over to justice. We have to circle back to justice on this one. Now, obviously, the rejoinder here is, well, we're not just going to give legal immigrants money because they have not been wronged by the federal government the way that these illegal immigrants were. The question is, is it worthy of huge taxpayer funded settlements? Ducey's asking, are we going to give checks to people who go through the long, arduous process of coming into this country legally? And she's like, well, why on earth would we do that? He's like, well, that's what you're doing for people who came here illegally. You are rewarding behavior in many different ways, this being one of them through cash payments, based on an ill-fated and I think ill-conceived policy from the previous administration. You are rewarding them with huge cash payments for their trouble. The trouble that they got into by defying our laws, defying our sovereignty, and being separated briefly from their families. Basically, it's another way of asking, is that the right message and what are we incentivizing here? Because quite rightly, she was mystified by the suggestion that we would give people money who go through the legal process. I feel like people who are going through the legal process of immigrating uh, to the United States Some of them just have to feel like chumps sometimes. Like here we are doing it the right way. It's extremely complicated and complex and difficult and time-consuming and expensive and all of this stuff. Whereas look at what is being rewarded at the southern border. And hey, if I've been put through a bit of a hardship, maybe I could get in and make a big fat check paid for by U.S. taxpayer dollars. Which brings us now to the weekend where President Biden denied that he called the Wall Street Journal report garbage. And it seems pretty clear, by the way, to me that the report was not garbage. Biden didn't know what was happening. He called it garbage. And then behind the scenes, they had to kind of backfill everything like, "Uh oh, he called it garbage. What are we going to do? Let's move some things around. Maybe the dollar amount has to come down. But it would appear that the initial report from the Wall Street Journal was correct, and it actually has not been denied. 
aside from the president himself, but I'm not sure who really believes the president is up to speed on stuff, right? A denial from Biden, I mean, that's about as official as a White House denial should get, but it's not really a credible denial because he doesn't know what's happening or doesn't remember what's happening or miss that briefing or nodded off. I don't know. So he was asked by another one of our colleagues, David Spunt, about this report and his reversal. And here he goes trying to deny something that you just heard a few minutes ago. That's why I played it. Here's cut seven on Saturday. You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't Uh, say that. Let's get it straight. Now, here's the thing. If, in fact, because of the the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, it's gone, you deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. All right, so this is a new position that Joe Biden has. He denies that he called the report garbage, although that's absolutely what he did. We played you the soundbite. That's not what I said. Let's get it straight. Let's get it straight, Mr. President. I know there's some confusion here. I don't think it's David Spun's confusion. And now he's very forcefully, sort of with an edge, making the point in favor of these payments that he was dismissing as not going to happen and garbage in the report just a few days prior. And by the way, I'm not exactly sure what he means there by lost your child, gone. This was not for people who died or who kid, whose kid died. By the way, most of the horrible, tragic deaths in this entire illegal immigration surge in the border crisis is people who get stuck or caught in the desert or become dehydrated. I mean, it is it is awful. We should not incentivize it. It is inhumane to keep incentivizing this illegal immigration. It's terrible. It's not like like the U.S. government has come in and tried to give medical assistance to people who are in dire straits when we find them, when we encounter them at the border. I believe when he says when you've lost your child, he's talking about the child being separated from you, not your child dying. I think, again, I'm just having to kind of attempt to read between the lines here in Biden's speak. Because this was an issue of family separation, not child death or child death at the hands of the U.S. government. But the way he framed it sounded a lot like the kid had died. No, I didn't say that. Let's get this straight. You did say it. We just played it. You went from saying it's not going to happen, poo-pooing the whole thing, to now saying, well, if this bad thing happened, then you should get compensation. And say, well, it's not going to be $450,000. That's what he was talking about. All right. Last but not least, a poll, a national poll on this exact issue, this controversy from Trafalgar Group. This is uh, sort of the right-leaning pollster who I will simply point out got a few of the states a lot closer to right in 2020, much closer, tighter races than some of the, uh, you know, A-plus rated prestige pollsters did. I know people give Trafalgar a really hard time. We've had Robert Cahaley on this show. In Virginia and New Jersey, he basically nailed it. 
He nailed the margin in Virginia, and he was within one point in New Jersey, unlike basically all the other pollsters. So they roll their eyes at Trafalgar, but they probably shouldn't. Trafalgar asks a national poll. Here's the question. How do you feel about the Biden administration's considering paying families of illegal immigrants separated at the southern border $450,000 each for psychological trauma? That's a quote. That's the question. 18 percent, and you round up, 19 percent approve of this idea. 67 percent disapprove of this idea. A supermajority, two-thirds. With 56 percent, an outright majority, strongly disapproving. I think in his gut, Joe Biden initially realized the numbers might look something like this. So he said, no, it's garbage. Now they might have to argue, nope, this is justice and this is fair. And it's only X amount of money, not $200 or $450,000 a pop. I suspect that's a debate that a lot of Republicans will be more than happy to have on immigration, incentives, justice, etc. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, we've got Dr. Nicole Sapphire coming up in the next hour. Can't wait to talk to her about her new op-ed about vaccines for kids. I did see that the newly elected mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, the mayor-elect, he says he wants to get rid of mask requirements in schools. He thinks it's bad for the kids. That is what the science actually shows. So I hope he and the science prevail on that front. What a refreshing thing to hear from anyone, especially a Democrat in a place like New York City. The governor of New Jersey also changing his tune, it sounds like, a little bit. Maybe the election got his attention. We'll ask Dr. Sapphire about that as well. Much to get to with her. It's straight ahead. Hour two of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three hours. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. And a reminder, I'll be joining the special report panel with Brett Bayer and company in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time on Fox News Channel. That is this evening. Fox News alert as we begin hour number two. The Dow closes up 104 points, ending the day at 36,432. Joining me now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author most recently, of Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Dr. Sapphire, welcome back. Hello, Guy. Thanks for having me on. You bet. So I want to start with a few topics before we get to your op-ed in the journal with Marty McCary. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, there was some excitement 
at least uh, on my part, when I heard the new mayor-elect in New York City say that he would like to get rid of mask mandates for kids in schools in New York. He thought it was bad for them. He thought it wasn't necessary. Of course, we've talked about this so many times, looking at Europe and the UK and their experience. We are a global outlier when it comes to masking children. The efficacy of that policy is at best unsupported and uh, not established. I think at worst, it is just a superstition that has clung on for political reasons. But you've got Eric Adams saying he wants to end it in New York City. Then we have the governor of New Jersey, where you live, who just barely squeaked by in a much closer election than he was hoping for. Phil Murphy uh, just announcing today that he expects to lift school mask requirements in phases. Now, there's no timeline on this. I would love to know when he plans to do this. But the plan, at least there is a discussion of an off-ramp here on school masking. He said that would begin with the early phases starting among older students because they are further along getting vaccinations. I think that seems to me, based on my understanding of all this, might be a bit backwards because the younger students are at virtually no risk from COVID and serious complications. But I just kind of welcome, doctor, any conversation from elected Democrats in particular about finally doing away with a policy that you have described over and over again as not being backed up by the science and not making a lot of sense. I just want to get your reaction. Well, you know, it's interesting, and I'm I'm happy to hear that people are actually finally starting to have the discussion about removing masks, because if you base it on what we're hearing from CDC Director Dr. Walensky, I mean, last week she tweeted that, hey, wearing masks are a good thing. Not only does it reduce your risk of COVID-19, but it's going to lessen your risk of getting the flu or colds. And it's like, well, last time I checked, we weren't masking to avoid getting a cold or even the flu for that sense, seeing as we have vaccine treatments. We actually have the sound on that. This is Dr. Walensky, the the soundbite that you're referring to. Let's just play it. Cut 16. The evidence is clear. Masks can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 by reducing your chance of infection by more than 80%. Whether it's an infection from the flu, from the coronavirus, or even just the common cold. In combination with other steps like getting your vaccination, hand washing, and keeping physical distance, Wearing your mask is an important step you can take to keep us all healthy. All right, so you've got the triumphal music there in the background, sort of a PSA vibe there from Dr. Walensky. And the point that you were just making, doctor, jumped out to a lot of folks. She wasn't just talking about COVID. She was now name-checking the flu or the common cold and preventing those being uh, you know, a, a positive element of masking. Again, that is I mean, just a massive shift of the goalpost away from just COVID to saying, well, maybe there's other reasons to keep people masking. That bothered a lot of folks. And there were other doctors also questioning where on earth she got the statistic that wearing a mask can reduce your chance of infection by 80 percent. There were doctors saying we don't have that evidence. So feel free to react to, to both of those components of what we just heard from the highest ranking doctor in the country. Well, right. I mean, she's essentially alluding that face masks will be here to say stay without providing science supporting their continued use or even giving a metric of when we can remove it. And by her saying that they can 
uh, you know, filter out or decrease your risk of getting it by up to 80% of not only COVID flu and other common cold virus, there's no data saying that. She is picking one study that shows maybe you can reduce transmission if you're wearing a tight-fitted, appropriate, surgical, medical-grade mask. It can reduce the risk of transmission by 80%. But that's not what we're talking about when you have kids wearing these cloth masks in school or on airplanes or in restaurants or in theaters or anything else for that matter. And yes, maybe some countries have gone to the point where they have adopted wearing face masks just as uh, every day. A lot of Asian companies have done that after the first SARS pandemic. But the truth is the United States they're not going to stand for that. And we really, they don't need to, because the outcome of this pandemic is different than the last one when it came to SARS, because we have the vaccine, we have treatments, and we have so much natural immunity that the present, percent positivity rates from now having such vaccine and natural induced immunity, percent positivity rates are less than 5% throughout the entire country. Of course, Governor Murphy needs to talk about removing masks from kids. We have a positivity rate of 3% in our state. And now he is saying he's going to remove masks, starting with the older kids, because they have eligibility to get the vaccine. But you're right, Guy. Adolescents are at a higher risk of not only getting infected, but getting uh, more severe symptoms when it comes to COVID-19, much higher than their younger counterparts. These removing of masks cannot be contingent. Yeah, they cannot. These removing of masks in children cannot and should not be contingent on vaccine mandates, because if you do universal vaccine mandates in this five to 11 age group, you're going to have some consequences of that, because this Pfizer study was not powered enough to show those rare adverse events. Okay, so let's get to this op-ed that you have co-authored with Dr. Marty McCary. So you're both Fox News contributors, both medical doctors. You've both been on the show multiple times. This is the headline published today. Should you vaccinate your five-year-old? Subhead, be reassured that whatever you do, the risk is extremely low. And that's how you begin the first paragraph of this op-ed, pouring over CDC data and the estimate based on their previous data and what we know now, that in all likelihood, more than 50% of American kids age 5 to 11 have already had COVID. Roughly 50% may be higher than that. And of the 28 that I'm quoting now, of 28 million children in that age range, 5 to 11, 94 have died of COVID since the pandemic began. So 19 or 20 months, 94 out of 28 million So let's start right there because I saw a doctor was tweeting over the weekend that it's ghoulish and wrong to point out that, you know, just a few hundred child deaths from COVID is statistically virtually zero because it's mean-spirited and nasty to the families who have actually lost children. And I understand you don't want to dismiss any child's death like that at all. And that's not the point of having a statistical analysis of best practices and medical decisions for the country and public policy decisions being crafted. If you've got 94 deaths out of 28 million in a population within a certain age range, it would be, I would say, quite irresponsible to overblow the 94 deaths without being at all, you know, dismissive of the the pain of those 94 families 
you have to craft policy based on as much data as you have. And this actually, setting aside that pain that I mentioned for those individual families, is very good news when it comes to young children and their susceptibility to COVID and uh, severe cases of COVID, right? That that's the has to be the jumping off point, the starting point for any policy like this. The, so Marty and I, friend and colleague, we have been talking about this piece for about six months. About six months ago, we wrote a piece in the Washington Post talking about why we do need a safe and effective vaccine for kids. We made the argument why there needs to be one available. This paper is, well, who gets the vaccine? Who needs it? I'm glad we have one available because we need one, because there are some children who are going to be vulnerable to COVID-19. So we needed one. But now let's take that a little bit further. And as more time has come, the Delta wave, certainly we saw significantly more transmission amongst children. So which is why the CDC data suggests that by the end of June, over 42 percent of all kids had already had COVID-19. Now get us through the Delta wave. That number is going to be over 50 percent of those 28 million children have already had the protection of natural immunity. So here's the good news for parents, myself included. I have two kids in the 5 to 11 age group. When you're sitting here faced with the decision of whether to vaccinate your kids or not, the good news is whether you choose to or not, the risk to your child is extremely low. We know the risk of a severe outcome of COVID-19 in a healthy 5 to 11-year-old is negligible. Yes, it's not nil. It's not zero, but it approaches a negligible amount being so low that even 50% of those children in that age group who get infected are asymptomatic, let alone have the sniffles. So that's one hand. That's if you And by the way, j- just to jump in, I just want to clarify one thing because I know that when we're talking about vaccinating and making choices about vaccinating kids, within this context, you're clearly talking about COVID-19 vaccines, not talking about vaccines, broadly speaking, and parents getting their their kids vaccinated against other diseases, right? I just want to, even though it should seem obvious, I just want to make that point because I think some folks are conflating these things. Oh my goodness, you can't even draw a parallel. Say, for example, measles, mumps, and rubella. Measles can have up to an 80% hospitalization and mortality in children if they are to get a severe case. Why would you not vaccinate your children against these highly deadly and virulent viruses? Absolutely not. I'm specifically speaking about SARS-CoV-2 in young children. You cannot extrapolate to any other population or any other vaccine for that matter. Now, even... So for us, though, when we're talking about vaccinating young kids, first of all, we said there is no scientific evidence to argue for vaccinating children who have already recovered from COVID-19. Even Pfizer in their study pointed out that no child in either the vaccine or placebo group who had prior COVID got reinfected. And that just grows on the mountain of evidence that shows natural immunity is um, effective at preventing infection. Um, And in children, it's likely going to be even stronger because kids have a stronger immune system than adults. Now, then you talk to, okay, well, what about the kids who haven't had COVID-19? Should they get vaccinated? Well, there's not a strong argument not to vaccinate those kids. The ones who certainly need it are those who have pre-existing medical conditions. And I'm not just talking about Down syndrome or congenital heart disease or even diabetes. I'm talking about some kids who are just overweight because being overweight increases their risk of hospitalization by threefold than a non-overweight child. 
So if you have an overweight child, you should absolutely should talk to your pediatrician about whether um, your child should re- uh, receive the vaccine. Um, and continuing to add on to that, the one thing that we were concerned about was, you know, there are about 10% of after the second dose of vaccine, there were some side effects. You know, most ki- kids and adults who get a vaccine, they have side effects like redness and swelling at the injection site, being tired the next day. About 10% of kids, though, got a, a fever. Uh, some of them were pretty high, up to 104 degrees, and that would keep a child home from school. Now, now you have to balance that with children when they, if you have a healthy child who gets COVID, they're either asymptomatic or they're probably just going to have mild symptoms like a, a upper respiratory illness. Um, so that's a, that's a conversation to be had. Are you going to risk giving them a fever from the vaccine or just getting a cold from the virus? Um, again, but that's a gamble that most parents and physicians don't want to change take because the virus is a bit tricky. And while we can say statistically what's likely going to happen, you know, there are unexpected occasions. And so um, it is under our opinion that it is often better to expose a child to get the immunity in a controlled setting from a vaccine as opposed to letting um, the child naturally get it from, by being exposed to the virus. So just one minute left here in the segment, doctor. To bottom line it, you guys write, it's safe to assume that vaccinating a healthy child would take his extremely low risk of serious disease uh, and disease and drive it down even lower. You also say that kids who have already had COVID, probably half of the kids in this age range, don't need the vaccine. You talk about maybe one shot for kids instead of two shots for kids. And the kids who need it most are people who have comorbidities, including obesity or who have someone at home with a serious comorbidity. And aside from that, like there's different factors here for parents and doctors to have this conversation. Uh, So just did I summarize that correctly? And what is your thought on mandating vaccines for children, especially in this age range, for example, in order to be allowed to show up for school? You know, I I truly believe that with such lack of safety data, you know, only about 3,100 children were given the vaccine. And when um, myocarditis in adolescents was seen in one in 7,000 adolescents, we just haven't given the vaccine to enough children to see what those rare adverse events are going to be or what the rates are. So I think at this point, just a blanket indiscriminate vaccine mandate in five to 11 year olds may result in unintended unintended consequences, um, especially amongst children who may have already recovered from COVID-19, because I suspect that they'll have a stronger adverse event profile. Well, if you've got a kid or multiple kids, especially in this age range, and you're agonizing over the vaccine question for them, the piece in the Wall Street Journal today, should you vaccinate your five-year-old? All the information is there. Have a conversation with your doctor. Listen to these two doctors who've written the piece, one of whom is our guest here, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, senior Fox News medical contributor. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Guy. The Guy Benson Show rolls on right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. There was an interesting segment that aired, believe it or not, on CNN, where a journalist got together with four mothers in Virginia, like a mini focus group, and asked them about the influence of education and other issues on the election. These are independent or Democrat-leaning women who voted for the Republicans and for Glenn Youngkin, who won the election. 
And a lot of what these mothers had to say is probably pretty alarming to Democrats because it flies in the face of what the Democrats have been insisting now for weeks. And some of them continue to insist even after losing last week. I noted last week that the final rally for Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, featured Randy Weingarten, who is perhaps more responsible for more harm to kids than anyone else in the country. I thought that maybe not – maybe it was not a great idea from Terry McAuliffe. And one of these mothers evidently felt the same way. Listen to Cut 26. Parents were very angry during school closures at the teachers' unions. And um, for me, the nail in the coffin was on his last day of campaigning. He brought the head of the teachers' union to his rally, and she spoke. And it was like someone just (laughs) poked me right in the eye and said, do you think you want to have a say in your education? Well, you're not going to. Yeah, not a great move there, Terry, bringing in Randy Weingarten as your big closer. These mothers were not happy. They voted Republican. And, of course, left-wing Twitter is saying, well, look at these white women. Yeah, that's the way to go. Let's call them racist. More on that front, actually, when we come back. The gaslighting is ramping up on the left. Let's fact check the left straight ahead. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening on this Monday. I want to talk a bit about wokeness, and this is different than woke tales. We'll probably get to woke tales in the next segment. This is more of a meta conversation about wokeness because we're starting to see a pattern on the left. Namely, when you want to criticize the dramatic, if not revolutionary change that they are seeking to impose on society, if you want to talk about it, if you want to reject it, if you want to criticize it, They're going to find ways to tell you that the way you're talking about it is unto itself problematic or harmful. And therefore, you can't really talk about it in a way unless it is approved by them. So exhibit A, we've been talking about this now for weeks, is critical race theory, which I have been using, as most people use it, as a broader term, an umbrella term for equity and so-called anti-racism and all of this race-obsessed curricula, pedagogy, etc., right, where they're trying to change standards, reduce standards based on racial considerations. They're trying to tear names off of buildings like Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln even. They're having diversity trainings from people who tell people of color that they are victims And they tell white kids that they are bad or part of some privileged class and therefore should be imbued with inherent generational guilt. The list goes on of the type of thing that we're talking about. And that is, as a shorthand, referred to by many people, including myself, as critical race theory. And what they say, The proponents of critical race theory, the people who are on board with this kind of indoctrination, they say, well, you dare not call it critical race theory because that is technically this very narrow discipline that's only taught in law schools. And it's not taught in any public schools or for elementary school students or even high school students. It's a giant, invented, phony right wing lie. Right. That's their pushback. And it is absolute misdirection. It is at its core a lie. 
I saw an MSNBC host called Mehdi Hassan, who spends a lot of time lecturing white people and lying about what the Democrats are doing and what progressives like him believe and want to do. He tweeted this got a huge amount of amplification on Twitter. This was over the weekend. An apolitical friend asked me tonight, where did this critical race theory thing in Virginia come from? He responded, nowhere. Then this friend supposedly says, but it must be based on something. He responds, nope, it's based on nothing. And they were shocked to learn this. They couldn't believe it. Normal people can't believe this stuff works. Now, I would imagine that that friend would have good reason to be absolutely astonished if something based in nothing really became a driving issue of a campaign. The problem for Mehdi Hassan and everyone like him, including the Biden White House, a lot of people in the press, the insane asylum that was MSNBC all of last week, is that this is based not just on something, but on many things that people are noticing. And they just insist to all of us that it's a lie. And the people pushing it are either racists or they've been duped by racists. And I had a lot to say about this in a monologue last week. That's up in the ballpark of 200,000 views now on YouTube from last week. Now, here's a guy, an interesting, thoughtful, intellectually honest, I would say center-left person, a writer, Zaid Jelani. And Zaid Jelani, who you'll be shocked to learn, is a person of color. Now, I know that the hardcore leftists would say, well, if you push back on what we believe, then you are simply a mouthpiece for white supremacy. This is what they've said just in the last few weeks about Condoleezza Rice, for example. Winston Sears, the new lieutenant governor-elect in Virginia. Right? It's all racism and white supremacy. And then when there are people of color pushing back, well, they are just tools of white supremacy. It's a ridiculous racket that they run. And it is so insulting. But Zaid Jelani went on a whole response thread on Twitter, not directly necessarily to what Mehdi Hassan was tweeting, but this is in response to that entire line of argument. So Jelani writes this, Fairfax County, so that's one of the suburban counties, Northern Virginia, spent five figures inviting Ibram Kendi for a virtual speech. He is one of these hardcore racialized professional race baiters. That's what he does. He goes around, he writes best-selling books, that a bunch of guilty white liberals buy and a bunch of progressives pay him a lot of money to come and speak and talk about how everything's racist. He is almost like a walking, talking embodiment of critical race theory. This is what his whole grift is. This is what he does with his life. And the Fairfax County schools paid him a lot of money to come give a speech about anti-racism and equity and all this stuff. At a time, by the way, writes Jelani, when all of the schools in Fairfax County were closed to in-person learning. He says, I suppose people will argue this didn't actually happen, right? Because it's all a lie. This is all made up, they tell us. Jelani goes on, the problem with this debate is the level of not owning up to what's being done. If you're doing something, you have to defend it, not pretend you're not doing it. He writes, I obtained an email earlier this year sent by the principal of Thomas Jefferson, it's a high school, the main school in Northern Virginia where they changed admissions requirements. They are explicit that this was done in the name of diversity politics. You can't say it's not happening. And then he has a link. They have the receipts. And we've also talked about how Christopher Rufo has provided and furnished the receipts on this stuff, too. With critical race theory and its offshoots being mentioned and cited all over the place, including on the website of the Virginia Department of Education. 
It's all there. We played you the soundbite last week twice of the Indiana administrator from a large school district in that state saying, when we tell you we're not teaching critical race theory, we're lying. We dress it all up using different terms and we use technicalities to lie to you that it doesn't exist. Jelani talking about Thomas Jefferson High School, and that was one of the big fronts in Northern Virginia of critical race theory and that battle. He says the district superintendent and the principal's explanation for agitating those changes was focused on racial equity language. It's right there. Why deny this was the ideology driving this? Just defend it if you want it. Don't deny it. There's a lot of, well, that's not really critical theory, which might as well be people looking at the Soviet Union and saying, well, that's not really communism. Call it whatever you want. You know it when you see it. And we call it critical race theory because it is one of their strains of pedagogy that has been incubating on the left that is now manifesting itself not just in Virginia. And that was a nice little partial summary, not even close to comprehensive from Zaid Jelani. Lee Fong, who's a lefty but is also disgusted by this stuff, he tweeted just a few days ago, I just read this New York Times piece on proposed California state education standards that demand teachers change curricula to bring racial identity politics into everyday math lessons. I click on the draft standards, and the first section cited is a critical race theory paper, and then he links to it. Lee Fong, again, a lefty journalist. If you say something about critical race theory, you get a gazillion scolds claiming there's no CRT in schools. Nothing inspired by this ideology. When you take literally two minutes to look into recent curriculum changes, you find it everywhere. So they are hardcore gaslighting us on critical race theory. And what's interesting now is this. So on CNN over the weekend, yesterday, Dana Bash asked a question of Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia. And let's just play the very beginning. Here's the question that she ultimately winds up and asks the senator. Cut 19. Are Democrats too woke, Senator? Listen, I don't support defund the police. Okay, so we can just pause it there for now. He goes on later to say that he's not woke. He's not in favor of defunding the police. And really, on critical race theory, it's not taught in Virginia schools. And Glenn Youngkin whipped that up to stoke divisions. That's what he says again, because that is the official party line from the White House all the way on down. So that's not surprising, and we've just spent a fair amount of time debunking that claim. But the question from Dana Bash of CNN was, are Democrats too woke? And if you look what happened on Twitter to her, because Twitter is really the hive mind of hardcore tribalistic leftism. This is where they sort of form their consensus, and it's often way out of the mainstream, which is why I think – It is wise to repeat over and over again, Twitter is not real life. Lefty activists are trying to manifest real life out of Twitter. And it's largely working is the problem. Of course, it isn't working for the Democratic politicians who just got shellacked last week. So they're spending a lot of time doubling and tripling down saying that's not even true. What left-wing Twitter did was pile on Dana Bash for using the term woke because just like critical race theory, oh, you can't do that. Woke unto itself is manipulative and a right-wing term. So Nicole Hannah-Jones of the massively flawed and discredited 1619 Project of the New York Times, which was supposed to be meant to be taught in schools and was riddled 
with historical inaccuracies. Right? She won awards for it. She is one of the woke enforcers, and she does not want us to say the word woke. She tweets, let me say, the use of the word woke or wokeness by journalists is lazy and biased and counts on the reader or viewer filling in with his or her own stereotypes. If you can't state specifically what you mean, why are you writing it? Because it's a catch-all phrase, madam. It's a broad term like critical race theory. They don't want us using any of these broad terms especially if they are effective because they want to bog us down in technicalities to try to derail the entire conversation. This is why they're trying to control words and police the lexicon of how we talk about these things. They've done it with CRT. They're doing it now with wokeness. This all just cropped up seemingly overnight. They all decided, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a problem with that word, not the idea. They think wokeness is good. They just don't want us calling it that anymore because they feel like they might be losing. So they're working the refs and they're piling on, in this case, Dana Bash of CNN saying this is this is lazy, biased, bad journalism. Don't you do that again. AOC hopping on the bandwagon. One dangerous aspect. This is on Twitter, of course. This is where they operate. One dangerous aspect of thinking there's a woke problem is that Dem chances for re-election or majorities in the House, Senate, and White House rely on the racial justice issue of voting rights. Woke is a term pundits are now using as a derogatory euphemism for civil rights and justice. Making up a quote-unquote woke problem results in putting civil and voting rights on the back burner. In a year, state legislators are planning out GOP majorities and voter suppression. That's dangerous. And she, of course, attacks Fox News and indoctrinating right-wingers. But it's also, she writes, about conditioning Dems on what to run away from. We shouldn't indulge it. So woke and wokeness is now problematic. Not what they're doing, us noticing and talking about it. And, of course, she frames wokeness as just good stuff like civil rights and justice. How can you be against that? Just like how can you be against teaching slavery is their argument against CRT, a complete distortion of what the actual argument is. So when conservatives or independents or moderates notice this sweeping social change that they are trying to institute in society and strong arm their way into existence, when it is noticed and pushed back against, it is divisive. It is phony. It's inventing an issue. When you try to call it something, critical race theory, wokeness, those are also bad. There's a lefty academic named Freddie DeBoer who's had just about enough of it. He wrote a piece on his Substack today, headline, please just bleeping tell me what term I'm allowed to use for the sweeping social and political changes you demand. And he makes this point. Whenever you try to frame something, whenever you try to put What they are doing into a category to criticize it, out come the knives, and they find new ways to say it's actually very bad, if not racist or deceitful, for you to even try to talk about these things. You can't use that term. You can't use this term. They want the entire conversation conducted on their terms, or better yet, not conducted at all. They want to do these things. They want no one to talk about them or object. They want people to go along with the program and welcome to the new America that they're trying to shape before our very eyes while denying it through intense gaslighting. And they want to tell you even talking about it is your problem, not theirs. DeBoer concludes his piece today, quote, right now, it sure looks like you don't want to be named because you don't want to be criticized. That is exactly right. 
Now, they insist. Wokeness doesn't exist. It is made up by right-wingers. And to the extent that it does exist, it's actually a good thing that they're distorting dishonestly for their dastardly purposes. It's not true. There's a reason that we have a whole segment called Woke Tales. We'll bring you another example, just the latest installment, as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. And I know it's now triggering, apparently, to the AOCs of the world to use the word wokeness. They don't want that to happen. We're going to keep doing it. Although triggering is also triggering, if you recall that story, because it brings up firearms imagery. That's the thing. They come up with their own words. They came up with woke. They came up with triggering. And then when it becomes a problem for them, they want everyone to just obey their rules of the road when it comes to talking. Not here. Which is why we bring you Woke Tales. So this is not some ivory tower, left-wing, Ivy League-type school. This is Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. There's a theater teacher who has been ousted from his role after more than a decade and a half at CCU. Why? Because he suggested that a misunderstanding on campus maybe wasn't a huge deal. I'm reading from National Review. The controversy began with a September 16th incident in which students discovered a list of names on a classroom whiteboard. The students, realizing that all the names belonged to students of color, quickly assumed that racial foul play was behind the list, and they organized a protest. So they see a list of names on a whiteboard. It's all people of color. And, of course, they jump to the conclusion, well, this must be racism for some reason. So they go crazy. However, a prompt investigation by the university revealed that the list had come out of a discussion between a visiting artist and students of color who said they were hoping to connect with other non-white students on campus. They wrote down these names as a potential group of people that they wanted to reach out to to discuss their shared experiences. So anything but a racist event, even though that was the conclusion that they jumped to. So the investigation and the results were shared with the wider community. And one of the theater professors at this school said, quote, I don't think it's a big deal. I'm sad people get their feelings hurt so easily and they're going into theater. And he suggested that people grow a thicker skin. So the mob then turned from the fake incident to this as the new outrage, saying that this was egregious and harmful and violence and all of this stuff, even though he was exactly right. And now his classes, the professor, have been reassigned. He's been told not to come back to teach them. And the university has launched an investigation into him and has now initiated a termination process against him. It's insane. He's now fighting back, as he should. The only way, I'm not litigious, the only way to make these schools pay is financial pain. Sue their asses every single time this stuff is attempted. Otherwise, the mob will rule. Cancel culture is real. Wokeness is toxic. And we are going to use whatever terms we want to describe them on this show, no matter what the woke overlords have to say about it. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Andy McCarthy here with legal analysis on a few crucial fronts, vaccine mandates and the Russia investigation. That is straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show.
It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now here's your host, Guy Benson. Our happy hour is underway here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday, Monday through Friday, three to six p.m. Eastern, and around the clock for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Your one-stop shop for all of your program-related needs. GuyBensonShow.com and the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is absolutely delicious. I've heard now from some folks out in Colorado who've been getting into it. As it recently arrived in that state as well, they continue to expand. They're rolling out variety packs in limited states. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. We are joined now by Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books, including Ball of Collusion, which we will absolutely be getting to that subject with him here in just a moment. Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you back. Guy, always a pleasure. I want to ask you before we get going any further, I know you're a big baseball fan, a big Mets fan. Were you able to bring yourself to root for the Braves in the World Series despite that rivalry? Or did the rivalry ultimately override any ill will you might have had toward Houston and Major League Baseball for robbing Atlanta of the All-Star game? You know, I really did root hard for the Braves. And, you know, I was reminded, well, for a couple of reasons, Guy. I think first, as you point out, the the thing with the All-Star game was a disgrace. And what they did to the poor city is a disgrace. Secondly, as a Mets fan in particular, I um, I was really impressed by what the Braves did at the trade deadline. They could have folded up their season because their best player had just been Acuna, had been injured, and they really went for it. They thought they had a good team and they had faith in it and they, they, they went for it. And I also think Freddie Freeman's just a great guy. He's like one of these impossible not to like guys. I think Swanson's the same way and a number of guys on their team. So I, I, I know about the rivalry. I feel the rivalry. The Braves have been beating the Mets brains in for about 20 years, but um, you can't help but like them. I think that's totally fair, and that's a lot coming from a Mets fan for the reasons that you alluded to. Andy, let's talk about first this decision that came down from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a suspension, at least for now, of this employer vaccine mandate through OSHA and what the Biden administration is attempting to impose. It looks like when it was first imposed, it was relatively popular in the polling. It has grown less popular in public opinion. That doesn't or at least shouldn't have an impact on the judicial reasoning, on the constitutionality of something like this. But it definitely adds to the broader kind of atmospherics of how people are feeling about any given policy at any given time. What is your read on the legality of what the Biden administration is attempting to do? And what is the significance of this stay, if you will, from one circuit court blocking this order from going into place and going into effect, even though it's not supposed to start until early January? Yeah, well, as far as the impact guy, that's a that's the big thing, right? The thing you mentioned at the end, it, it, you know, they're suspending something that isn't supposed to start until two months, so nobody's really going to notice any immediate 
concrete impact of it because it hasn't been up and going. But I do think there are significant legal problems for it. Um, the it's there are mainly administrative and statutory problems uh, rather than constitutional problems. And what I mean by that is administratively, they've adopted this emergency procedure, which the courts frown on to begin with. It's been litigated six times in history, and it lost five times, which is why it hasn't even been invoked since the 1980s. And here, the Biden administration, um, you can argue whether objectively we have an emergency. I think there's a good argument that we don't. But whether you whether you think so or not, the Biden administration hasn't treated it like an emergency. He he announced it two months ago, and it doesn't go into effect for another two months, which is not how you treat an emergency and makes it look like, you know, they went out of their way to avoid the notice and comment requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act. So I think they're well, going to have a problem. And not only that, Andy, just just to jump in, they've also pushed the start of the regulation or the emergency order going into effect until after the holidays. I know they're very worried politically about the holidays and the cost of things and supply chain issues. And then if you have a bunch of people getting laid off at the holidays or fired because of this, that's another bad headline. So it seems like they have said, "Okay, this is a huge emergency. We're using the clear and present emergency situation that we are claiming as our urgent peg for putting this into effect. But. It's not so much of an emergency that it needs to start right now. In fact, let's start it just after the holidays. I'm not quite sure if you can square that with, as you say, their framing of this as an urgent emergency that justifies this very significant federal intervention. Yeah, that's right, Guy. I mean, the the, the concerns that they raise that you've just outlined are completely legitimate concerns, and you'd have to have sympathy for that. But it was they who elected to go by means of this emergency process. You know, it's not like if they didn't declare an emergency, there wasn't a different way to do this. They could have gone the usual Administrative Procedure Act route, and they elected not to do that. So I think they're stuck with trying to show it's an emergency, and they simply aren't acting like it. And then I think they have other problems under the statute, namely, is a virus really a substance or an agent, as that term is understood in the in the legislation, I don't think it is, and I think it kind of it reminds you of the uh, of the case that they lost on the eviction moratorium, where you know they had very extravagant use of language that the or stretching of language that the Supreme Court ultimately rejected. So I think they got a, right, so a tough road to hope. You might even say that when it comes to this litigation. And the arguments that the administration has been forced to bring to bear and argue in court, you might say, based on some of your background noise there, Andy, that that dog won't hunt, legally speaking. That's that's my spin on it. I do want to ask you, Andy, about this story that broke last week. And that's why I made special mention of your most recent book, Ball of Collusion. This was the second indictment handed down by John Durham. We had Molly Hemingway discussing it. Last week, I want to get your take on it as well. We've got Kim Strassel later in the week. To me, this is an absolutely enormous story. Some of the things that you three in particular have been postulating and suggesting now for years, frankly, about the Russia investigation, its origins, the way it was conducted, almost like the most cartoonish version of misconduct and bootstrapping 
it's coming to clearer focus that maybe you guys were right, or perhaps it was even worse than you had suggested it was when it comes to the Steele dossier, which we know was central and essential to the entire probe, the origins of that dossier, what made its way in terms of quote-unquote intelligence into the dossier. We knew that it was paid for by the Clinton campaign, a fact that was uh, not told, people neglecting to mention that for FISA warrants, for example. One of the many things that the inspector general mentioned as a real problem in his report, we are now learning that a key subsource of the dossier was getting his information, garbage information, from someone closely tied to Clinton world. I mean, there's just Democratic fingerprints all over this thing, Andy. Give us your big picture assessment of what this latest round of indictments from Durham means. I think it confirms, Guy, what seemed evident from the Sussman indictment. That's the the lawyer Sussman who was indicted six weeks before this guy, Igor Danchenko. And that is that Durham is operating on a theory, which I think there's a wealth of evidence to support this, that the Trump-Russia narrative was basically a political dirty trick that was essentially concocted by the Clinton campaign, that it was, they crafted it, they peddled it through their law firm and through outfits like Fusion GPS that brought in Steele and ultimately brought in Danchenko. They peddled it to both the media, which they knew would be on board, and they peddled it to law enforcement uh, and and the intelligence apparatus of the government. And that enabled them as a campaign matter to argue not only that Trump was a stooge of Putin, but that he was under investigation for being a, a stooge of Putin. So it was it was to my mind, it was pretty clearly uh, a campaign dirty trick that doesn't necessarily make it a crime which is why what you're seeing is these people are notice they're being charged with lying to the FBI, uh, which implies the FBI was duped rather than in on it. You know, if you listen to the to the um, worst uh, accusations against the bureau, and I think the bureau has a lot to answer for here. Uh, there's a lot of you know extravagant claims that the bureau was in on the conspiracy. Right now, that doesn't look like it's Durham's theme, and that's why I think he's ultimately ending. Or, or gearing toward a narrative report at the end rather than a big sweeping indictment, because I think he's going to lay out what the Clinton campaign did and lay out all the things the FBI did. And it won't be criminal, but it'll be ugly. Andy, we saw just a few weeks ago a Politico reporter came out with a book in which he had done some journalistic legwork and found that, oh, wait, remember that Hunter Biden laptop and those emails? Yeah, that stuff was real. That was authentic. That got about a day or two of headlines, mostly in conservative press, and some folks, I guess, in mainstream media said, oh, huh, and moved on. And we all remember that that story was aggressively suppressed right before the 2020 election by big tech, by big media, by the Democratic Party, an assist from the intelligence community and a bunch of uh, former IC veterans saying, we think this is Russian disinformation. The Biden people called it Russian disinformation. They had no proof. Turned out it wasn't Russian disinformation. It was just real. And then it can be finally told many months later what the truth actually was. And it becomes a very quick story. I think it'll be harder for them to suppress this stuff and pretend like it doesn't really exist or move on very, very rapidly. 
especially if Durham writes sort of a bombshell damning report, as you just suggested, he will. But that being said, given what we've just learned from these two indictments, Sussman and Danchenko, the scant coverage of both of those indictments and the implications of those indictments suggests to me that there are a lot of people in the news media, in government, in the law enforcement bureaucracy who might be very happy to make this thing go away as soon as humanly possible when more truth is revealed. What can be done to counter that? Because these people obsessed on this story year after year after year. It was the number one political story in much of the political press. I mean, and it hung over the entire Trump presidency. If it was rooted fundamentally in a political dirty trick and false information, misinformation and lies, you would think that just some basic fairness would require quite a lot of attention and scrutiny be placed on the unraveling of the tale that they so eagerly spun and spun themselves up over for years on end. Yeah, well, let me tell you what I think would have to happen, Guy, to to make this a bigger story and why I think it won't happen. Uh, I think what would have to happen is the Republicans would have to make clear that if they take over Congress in 2022, this is going to be a major issue and there's going to be comeuppance for the people who were involved in this and the agencies that were involved in it. And some thought will be given or should be given to taking the national Uh, the foreign counterintelligence mission away from the FBI and reducing the Bureau down to just a law enforcement agency rather than uh, a national security intelligence agency. I don't think they're going to do those things because the Bureau still has a lot of um, sway on Capitol Hill. But I also think that it's, it's ironic, but I think for the Republicans at this point, they don't want to revisit uh, Trump and they don't want to revisit 2020. They're going to want to, um, 2020 or 2016, uh, they are right. going to want to move on right. to Biden. So, so I think the politics of it are going to shy the Republicans away from making this as big a deal as it should be. And otherwise, the media is, as you pointed out, their default position is just to undercover this. I suspect you might be right about that, Andy. And there might be an electoral case to focusing on the future and not relitigating the past. That might be wise on some level for the Republicans politically. On the other hand, there have to be consequences, right? If there is deceit and subterfuge used to weaponize the federal law enforcement apparatus, the intelligence community and the media to play a giant political trick, which then infects our political conversation for years on end with a lot of media involvement and collusion, if you will, that has to matter as well, just in terms of precedent. And making sure that that sort of thing is not incentivized in the future. It can't just be like, oh, whoops, that was a mistake, a little slap on the wrist. So that's a balancing act that somehow the Republicans and conservatives are going to have to pull off if, in fact, this stuff is all borne out. And it's beginning to look that way, I have to say. And I come in relatively skeptical on it. But we have to follow the evidence. The evidence is looking pretty damning. Already, And we will be watching what Mr. Durham does in the days and weeks ahead. Andy McCarthy, we've got to leave it there. Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple books, including Ball of Collusion. Andy, always appreciate it. Thank you so much, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. The happy hour continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. 
It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. First show of the week. Glad you are here. I want to follow up on a story we've been following pretty closely since last week's elections in Virginia and New Jersey. There's been a lot to break down. One race in particular is of great interest, and that is the race in southern New Jersey, where the president of the New Jersey Senate, Steve Sweeney, a Democrat who's been there forever, has lost his race to a totally unknown Republican, Edward Durr, a truck driver who spent almost nothing. Like one of his biggest expenditures in his campaign was donuts. It was the most rudimentary campaign imaginable, and he unseated the Democratic Senate president. Now, we told you last week that the Associated Press has called the race for the Republican, the challenger, Durr. However, as of today, Steve Sweeney has not conceded the race. Why? He, in an email to the Philadelphia Inquirer, suggested that there have been new ballots found. Quote, the results from Tuesday's election continue to come in. For instance, there were 12,000 ballots recently found in one county, Sweeney wrote in the email. While I'm currently trailing in the race, we want to make sure every vote is counted. Our voters deserve that, and we will wait for the final results. This is from FoxNews.com. Sweeney's office did not immediately respond to Fox's request for comments on the matter, specifically on identifying which county recently found these ballots. The Associated Press called the race for Republican truck driver and political newcomer Edward Durr Thursday morning with 100 percent of precincts reporting. 32,742 votes for Durr, 30,444 votes for Sweeney. So more than 2,000 votes separating them, apparently with all the precincts in. But Sweeney had not conceded yet. He still hasn't. And I guess he's just waiting for what? A few more straggler ballots to be counted or found Whenever I hear about that, thousands of ballots being found days later, I get a little concerned and a little bit defensive, and my antenna go up just a bit. I'd imagine that might be true for you as well. So we're going to keep watching this race and see if Sweeney eventually gets around to admitting what has happened, which is he lost. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break. Don't go anywhere. listening to a new generation of talk guy benson it is the happy hour on the guy benson show monday edition earlier today we spoke with dr nicole sapphire she and another fox news contributor doctor dr marty mccary have co-authored a piece in the wall street journal should you vaccinate your five-year-old it tackles the question of covid vaccines for young children mandates etc we got into it with dr sapphire getting her thoughts earlier here's part of that conversation So I want to start with a few topics before we get to your op-ed in the journal with Marty McCary. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, there was some excitement, at least uh, on my part, when I heard the new mayor-elect in New York City say that he would like to get rid of mask mandates for kids in schools in New York. He thought it was bad for them. He thought it wasn't necessary. Of course, we've talked about this so many times, looking at Europe and the UK and their experience. We are a global outlier when it comes to masking children. The efficacy of that policy is at best unsupported and uh, not established. I think at worst, it is just a superstition that has clung on for political reasons. But you've got Eric Adams saying he wants to end it in New York City. Then we have the 
governor of New Jersey, where you live, who just barely squeaked by in a much closer election than he was hoping for, Phil Murphy, uh, just announcing today that he expects to lift school mask requirements in phases. Now, there's no timeline on this. I would love to know when he plans to do this. But the plan, at least there is a discussion of an off-ramp here on school masking. He said that would begin with the early phases starting among older students because they are further along getting vaccinations. I think that seems to me, based on my understanding of all this, might be a bit backwards because the younger students are at virtually no risk from COVID and serious complications. But I just kind of welcome, doctor, any conversation from elected Democrats in particular about finally doing away with a policy that you have described over and over again as not being backed up by the science and not making a lot of sense. I just want to get your reaction. Well, you know, it's interesting, and I'm I'm happy to hear that people are actually finally starting to have the discussion about removing masks, because if you base it on what we're hearing from CDC Director Dr. Walensky, I mean, last week she tweeted that, hey, wearing masks are a good thing. Not only does it reduce your risk of COVID-19, but it's going to lessen your risk of getting the flu or colds. And it's like, well, last time I checked, we weren't masking to avoid getting a cold or even the flu for that sense, seeing as we have vaccine payments for it. We actually have the sound on that. This is Dr. Walensky, the the soundbite that you're referring to. Let's just play it. Cut 16. The evidence is clear. Masks can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 by reducing your chance of infection by more than 80%. Whether it's an infection from the flu, from the coronavirus, or even just the common cold. In combination with other steps like getting your vaccination, hand washing, and keeping physical distance, Wearing your mask is an important step you can take to keep us all healthy. All right, so you've got the triumphal music there in the background, sort of a PSA vibe there from Dr. Walensky. And the point that you were just making, doctor, jumped out to a lot of folks. She wasn't just talking about COVID. She was now name-checking the flu or the common cold and preventing those being, uh, you know, a a positive element of masking. Again, that is just a massive shift of the goalpost away from just COVID to saying, well, maybe there's other reasons to keep people masking. That bothered a lot of folks. And there were other doctors also questioning where on earth she got the statistic that wearing a mask can reduce your chance of infection by 80%. There were doctors saying we don't have that evidence. So feel free to react to to both of those components of what we just heard from the highest ranking doctor in the country. Well, right. I mean, she's essentially alluding that face masks will be here to say, stay without providing science supporting their continued use or even giving a metric of when we can remove it. And by her saying that they can, uh, you know, filter out or decrease your risk of getting it by up to 80 percent of not only COVID flu and other common cold virus, there's no data saying that. She is picking one study that shows maybe you can reduce transmission if you're wearing a tight-fitted, appropriate surgical medical-grade mask it can reduce the risk of transmission by 80%. But that's not what we're talking about when you have kids wearing these cloth masks in school or on airplanes or in restaurants or in theaters or anything else for that matter. And yes, maybe some countries have gone to the point where they have adopted wearing face masks just as uh, every day. A lot of Asian companies have done that after the first SARS pandemic. But the truth is the United States They're not going to stand for that. And we really they don't need to, because the outcome of this pandemic is different than the last one when it came to SARS, because we have the vaccine, we have treatments and we have so much natural immunity that the present 
percent positivity rates from now having such vaccine and natural induced immunity, percent positivity rates are less than 5% throughout the entire country. Of course, Governor Murphy needs to talk about removing masks from kids. My full interview with Dr. Nicole Sapphire here on The Guy Benson Show today, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free and on demand each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, Quiet Wyatt, was gone for a couple days out in California. We'll get a report from him. Did he find Governor Newsom, who's been out of the public eye now for the better part of two weeks? We'll get to that story when we return on The Guy Benson Show. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. It is Monday. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. every day. Even on weekends with the free podcast with Bonus Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is available there and elsewhere every day. Seven days a week, on demand, no charge to you, totally free. And we appreciate all of you who listen live or on the podcast. So I just want to quickly take a moment to congratulate my cousin, Emma, who got married over the weekend in sort of rural Maryland, beautiful part of the state. Whole family came in from all over the place, and it was a really pretty outdoor wedding, very autumnal. The color scheme of the wedding was autumnal, which I liked. The leaves were all changing. There was a slight chill in the air, but it wasn't too bad. And then it moved in for dinner and dancing indoors. But it was just a wonderful time. And she looked amazing in her dress. She and her husband exchanged handwritten vows that were really beautiful. And on a slightly political note, my cousin's immediate family on my dad's side, they are quite progressive. They are far, far to my left, I think it's fair to say. I am much to their right. But the groom's family tends to lean more my direction. And there were some references to this over the course of various toasts and speeches during the weekend, all in good fun and all in a positive spirit, which I love. And ultimately, everyone was beaming and a few tears were shed of happiness across both sides of the literal aisle at the wedding because these are just great people. And may they have a wonderful marriage and life together. And it was just a great day. And I was privileged to be there along with Adam and my whole family is just great. So cheers to Emma and Max. We're thrilled for you guys. We love you. So that was my weekend. You may have noticed toward the end of last week on the program, Quiet Wyatt, our assistant producer, was even more quiet than usual. That's because he was, in fact, not here. He was on vacation. He went out to California I know this will come as a shock to regular listeners. He went to Disneyland. This is a Disney-obsessed individual. He gets it from his family. We've discussed this on the air before. So I know producer Christine has questions about Wyatt's quick California jaunt. My first question, though, for you, Wyatt, is given the choice, why would you go to California and Disneyland as opposed to the land of freedom and opportunity known as Florida and Disney World, which is – if I recall correctly, bigger and has many more attractions than Disneyland. What was that decision about? 
So, Guy, I also I just want to state for the record, I'm not a Disney obsessed obsessed person because when I was there, there were people who are on like a whole nother level of craziness obsession that I just am not on. But um, I, I went to that's a relative argument, though, <laughs> right? You're still a big Disney guy. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Go on. So we, I went to California to go visit my sister because she goes to school out there and she is literally 15 minutes down the street from the park. So she goes all the time, literally in between classes. It's ridiculous. Does she have a season pass or is she paying every time? Yes, she has a season pass. Okay. She can go just about every single day and she almost does. Wow. And she hasn't gotten sick of it yet? Nope. She goes in, you know, gets a popcorn, goes with her friends in between classes. It's like, you know, their playground. I saw one photo of you, I believe, with a turkey leg. Was that a Disney culinary experience? Yes. Well, and guy, see, like, you know, the the rides are fun and I enjoy them. But, you know, when you get older, some of the rides just aren't as fun as they used to be. And there's roller coasters, which I somewhat enjoy. But the main thing that I've come to just really appreciate and love is the food. And I had a turkey leg. I had ice cream. I had you name it. I had it. And it was amazing. So you were gone Thursday and Friday on vacation. You're back here for the Monday show. You're dragging a little bit today because you made the decision to do the the red eye Sunday night into Monday back from the West Coast. I get the desire to squeeze as much fun out of a trip as possible and spend as much time as you can with your sister or in Southern California or at Disney or what have you. I will say Sunday into Monday when you have work on Monday, especially when you're trying to sleep on a plane upright, that is often a choice that I avoid at this stage. Yeah, I mean, it's not for everyone, but I'm I'm just a go, go. Cr- I mean, when we went to Disney on Saturday, I literally wanted to be there when the gates opened. Which until is like when? 8 a.m. Wow. So it's not, that's not that early. That's early. Uh, I would have wanted it to be 6 a.m. I would have went. Of you course know you would have. And then it closed <laughs> at 11 p.m. So I like, you know, I go, go, go. And so you wanted to be there for 15 hours. Yeah. And I, I mean, like I said, I was there from 8 to 11 and we got on all the rides, did everything. I, you know, relax. You got to pace yourself. You know, everyone wants to do everything at once, but you got to pace yourself. What, what are you doing on like, you know, hour 12 at Disney, knowing that you have hours left to go? I feel like you can probably do Disney in like, I don't know, six or seven hours and call it a day. This is double that. Yeah. But I mean, like, I went on some of the rides twice. You know, and, and sometimes during during the peak hours of the day, there's like huge crowds, an hour wait for each ride. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. So you go early, you hit all the big rides, you, you settle down, you have some food, like I said, and then you go back for another round of rides. Have you considered staging a protest outside of Disney demanding an earlier open where you would, you know, write up placards, you know, and maybe like, I don't know, get a Sharpie on your print edition of the Wall Street Journal and let us in. And you could have some sort of Disney-related chance that I'm sure you could think up. I, I'm not Disney-fluent enough perhaps to suggest anything, but would you perhaps try to become a Disney activist and try to impact management and their decisions on the hours for the park for people like you who want to be there, frankly, around the clock if possible? 
Yeah, and I, well, a lot ha- how a lot of that has to do with all the COVID restrictions. I mean, Disneyland was closed for over a year, while Disney World, I think, was only closed for uh, uh, three to four months around there. So a lot of it, and still the restrictions, you know, you have to wear the masks when you go inside. You could, don't have to wear them when you go outside, but there are still a lot of tough COVID protocols at the park. Yeah, out in California, where, by the way, a strange story, Governor Gavin Newsom, who was recently effectively not reelected, but retained by the people of California in the recall election overwhelmingly, 25 points, something like that. He has not been seen in public for getting on two weeks. I think this is day 12. He was supposed to go to Scotland for the uh, climate event, abruptly canceled that. They're saying it has something to do with a family situation or a family issue. I've seen some speculation that the last time he was in public, he was getting his booster shot. Is he having a reaction to it? I think that's just pure speculation, right? I think that's conjecture at this point. We have no idea what's actually happening, but it is odd for a public figure, a public official like that to be out of sight for that long. So we hope everything's okay there with him and his family. Christine, I know that you have uh, many curiosities here about why it's short trip to California. Did you try to convince him to let you come along? I I think so, right? Why? I'm sure I definitely asked if I could join the trip at some point. At one point, probably. Um, I I, I just have a question for you, Wyatt. I, Twelve hours in a park, guy. Here's the difference between no, fifteen hours in a park. It was eight to eleven. Okay. This is the difference between Quiet Wyatt and producer Christine. He is such a go-getter, and I'm literally such a no-getter. We spend thousands upon thousands to go to Disney World. We got to the park at like 8 o'clock, and by 1 p.m., Bobby and Megan and I looked at each other, and we're like, we're out of here. It's it's enough. We had a good time six hours in. Let's go. Go back to the hotel and go swimming. Mama can get a cocktail. Would you return to the park multiple days in a row? No, we did at least park to, once. Oh, because there's a few others down. Yeah, you can go to Orlando. you know, but every time there was never once we we're like, wow, we need to stay for twelve hours because we're having so much fun. But what to I'm, each their own. Yeah, the the part that I'm struggling to really understand because Wyatt is not out in California very often, so I can see it. Okay, I'm at Disneyland. Let's make the literal most of this day that is possible during the opening hours. We're gonna do all 15 hours. That is more than double what I would do myself, but I can I can see it at least. I cannot imagine being Wyatt's sister there with him, who's there every day, and then does 15 hours on a Saturday. That that is. I, I can barely think of anything that I do every day, right? Aside from, you know, like eat, shower, right? There's a few things that I do every day that's normal. I, I feel like there are activities that even I would grow tired of. I don't even drink every day. And I love that activity. As we established last week, because we did have a listener write in who was concerned about your well-being and your health. Yes. And so we had to assure everyone that we sort of play up some of that stuff just a little bit. But, Wyatt, will you be planning another trip back to California because you did not get nearly enough Disney? Or is the next trip to Florida and Disney World? I don't know when the next trip is. I mean, this was my first time in a park in over two years. And 
part of the reason why I did stay. Was it just a thrill? Were you were you like <laughs> skipping on your way from the car to the gates? Did you have that magic feeling? It was it was a fun time. It was good to be back in the park. But the main reason why I did stay is because the prices have gotten insane. It was $160 to walk in the gate. So I was getting every penny, every dollar out of my experience. And I was like, I'll stay there. Yeah. You wanted the dollar to minute ratio to be as favorable as possible for you, especially in this age of inflation and all of that. So, all right, fair enough. To each his own is exactly right. And Quiet Wyatt had the thrill of a lifetime at Disneyland for 15 hours on Saturday. Good times. We're out of time here on The Guy Benson Show. As I mentioned earlier, I've got special report up with Brett Baer in the next hour, probably around 640 Eastern. I'll be on set with Brett for the first time since pre-pandemic. So I'm pretty stoked on that. It's coming up on Fox News Channel. Back here tomorrow on the radio, same time, same place as always. Thank you and good night. We'll talk to you then. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.